guys have the PowerPoint up there? Okay, I'll wait for it. All right, good morning, everybody. Um, I'm so glad to be sharing God's Word with you today, and I was very thankful for the song that the um, painter sisters and mom picked. Um, It's an awesome song, and it does relate directly to this message this morning that we need to come to Jesus just as we are. And I want to tell you that it's been a really wonderful experience for me becoming the director of youth and young adults here at Norwin Alliance Church. And I am so thankful that even the young adults can come to Jesus just as they are. I say that tongue-in-cheek because listen to this. In my work here with the youth, I have realized that the young people at this church, and I mean the teenagers, are gracious and wonderful, kind, compassionate to one another. I've been very impressed. The young adults, not so much. (laughs) I took the young adults on our first outing together. It was a wonderful time. We went bowling. And I need to tell you that the entire time we were there, what we did was mock and make fun of one another's bowling stances. <laughs> Somebody would get up, we'd make fun of exactly how they did it. They had they made fun of me. We just made fun of each other the whole time. Teenagers don't listen to this. It's not what you should do. And then one particular time what we what we decided to do was we would go up to the line and actually try to bowl like somebody else. Okay? And somebody who's in the sanctuary this morning and <clears throat> I won't say your name, <coughs> Trisha um, excuse me. Um, she went up to imitate one of the other young adults, which you should not do. And this is what God does to you when you're making fun of somebody else. She went up to do an imitation of someone and, you know, in her exuberance, went past the line. You're not supposed to go past the line where it gets shiny and glossy on the lane. You know what I mean? She went a little past the line in her exuberance and <laughs> straight down. I mean, straight down. She is laying flat on her back on the lane. And here is what we wonderful young adults from Norman Alliance Church did. Certainly a group of us, maybe even her husband, (laughs) Andy, maybe he got up and said, are you okay, honey? Maybe one of us went to say, did you break your wrist? Are you unconscious? Um, We feel bad for you. But no, that is not what we did. Every single one of us, without exception, sat at our chairs, pointed our finger right at her, and laughed hysterically. (laughs) And nobody went to help her. Is that pathetic or what? So listen, come as you are, young adults. Jesus will accept us as we repent and come to him. We're sorry to that person that's here today. Don't know who she is, but anyway. Um... This message is called The Whole Truth because in our society today, too often, even among Christians, we are telling and emphasizing half-truths to our own destruction. So this is called The Whole Truth, and it comes from a little obscure section of Scripture that maybe you've never thought about as a good Scripture to go to for a devotional, but I think you're going to look at this completely differently today. Beginning at Mark chapter 12, verse 35. The Bible says, and Jesus began to say as he taught in the temple. And I want to stop right there because every word of God is critically important in the Bible. There is a reason that I am amazed that Jesus, who is God in the flesh, God himself, 
would come down and locate himself within the physical structure of the temple in the first century A.D. The temple was the place of worship. The temple was the place where people came to worship God. And if you remember the history of the temple, it began way back in the Old Testament when God gave instructions to Moses and the people of Israel to build the what? The tabernacle in the wilderness, do you remember? To exact specifications, which later became Solomon's temple, which we have Herod's temple in the first century A.D. But the history of this was, God said, I want you to build a tabernacle to exact specifications, and I want you to worship me there. And the center of that worship was the daily, weekly, monthly, yearly sacrificing of animals by the priests on behalf of the people and himself. Do you remember that? Over the days and months and centuries, millions upon millions of gallons of animal blood were shed in the tabernacle and in the temple at a gory scene where animals would be slain, their blood placed on the altar, many times their bodies burnt up in an offering to God. And it's so ironic that this gory scene went on and on because God said for it to happen. And yet Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 and 12 make something very, very clear. It says every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins offers the same sacrifices time after time, which could never take away sins. But he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen? And so we ask ourselves, the point of the temple was the sacrificing of the animals. Well, why would God ask us to do that if it had nothing to do with the erasing of our sins? Because from Noah, when he got off the ark and built the altar, through through every Old Testament person and all the priests who ever offered those animal sacrifices, they were looking ahead to Jesus. It was never about the animal's blood. It was people saying by faith, we are going to do this to demonstrate that we believe Jesus Christ is coming. He is the reason for the temple. He is the reason for the church building. We so often take refuge and feel good about ourselves because we come to church. It doesn't matter if you come to church. It matters if you come to the reason for the church. And so it strikes me as odd that Jesus would lower himself and humble himself enough to come and stand in a structure that people were worshiping rather than him himself. Amen? And I'm going to tell you, he is so much the meaning of the temple You'll never read this scripture again the same. He is so much the meaning of the temple that John, when he was given his revelation of the new heavens and the new earth by God in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, I love it. Because this old earth that we live on now is going to be made new someday. Amen? It's the new heaven and the new earth, okay? So John is given a revelation of the new heaven and the new earth in chapter 21, and he says something like this. He says, Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. 
And then he goes on to describe things about this. God wipes all the tears from our eyes. All the old things are passed away. Behold, everything has become new. There was no more death or mourning or sorrow or pain. There was no more sin curse, no more disease, no more natural disaster, no more man pitted against man, no more destruction. It was all brand new. And John was caught up in this whole thing. And so amazed that God was going to remake this earth and make the heavens new. And as he was watching all this happen, all of a sudden you begin to read and you see he saw something that is so amazing. He said, and then I looked and I saw a city coming down from heaven. Now listen to me. I know that cities can get polluted and they can have crime in this world. But how many of you know that we human beings have built some glorious skylines, right? We've done it using brains that are made in the image of God. We're creative in his image. We've done it using stuff that he gave to us to mold into shape. And we can make some really cool cities. Can you imagine what a city will look like that was made by the hand of God himself? I shake when I think about it. John said, in the new heaven and the new earth, I saw a new Jerusalem coming down from the hand of God himself. Human ingenuity had nothing to do with it. It came down and he said its walls were like jasper and the city was made of pure gold. And he said it was measured by human and angelic measurement to be about 1,500 miles wide and long and deep. And it came right down from heaven. And he was just, he was enamored with this. He couldn't believe it. And he said, and I saw this city coming down. And he said, and I started inspecting it. I started looking at it. And here's what he said in verse 22. Now think about it. Jerusalem was the capital where the temple always was. Amen? It was the center. It was where the temple was. And John said in verse 22, I looked and I did not see a temple in the city. Naturally, he would have been looking for the temple because isn't that the center of worship? He says, I looked and I didn't see a temple in the city. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. Amen? It is never about the structure. It is never about the church building. It is about Jesus. He is the temple. Amen? And so I am amazed at the glory and the grace of God to come down to this earth and to locate Himself within that structure that was really pointing to Him and to take time to teach us, which is what His Holy Spirit is doing right now. He comes into a building that we make and says, please see that it's only about me. Amen? So he began to say, as he taught in the temple, and then Jesus does something really radical. He's going to rip on the scribes. Now, how many of you have heard of the scribes and the Pharisees in the New Testament? Okay, we're going to talk particularly about the scribes. He is going to provoke the people and the scribes and try to get at the heart of a very, very important issue, which is still a very, very important issue as we sit here in this sanctuary this morning. It has to do with us. He comes and he says, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? 
Now, before we get to the question, let's get context and understand who the scribes are. Now, the scribes were a very, very important group of people. In the Old Testament days, we can, we can thank the scribes that we have an accurate Bible. Amen? The scribes in the Old Testament days were secretaries to the kings, but they were the people who were mainly responsible and worked very meticulously, gave it their all to transcribe all of the manuscripts of the Word of God so that we can trust that what we have in our hands today, the copies of the copies of the copies are accurate because God preserved it and largely through the scribes. They were very, very meticulous people. And much to my eighth grade students' chagrin, I would have them learn just how meticulous the scribes are. When I taught a Bible class back at Pittsburgh East Christian School, eighth graders, it was called Mastering Bible Study Skills. And Mrs. Prindle had them all do a scribal project. Anybody who's in my youth group, hold your ears because you don't want to hear this. Okay, and my point was to let them realize with what accuracy the scribes worked and how we can trust the Bible that we have in our hands. And here's what they had to do. They had to pick a New Testament epistle of at least three chapters. So say they picked the book of Ephesians. They had to copy letter for letter, punctuation mark for punctuation mark, that entire book of the Bible onto uh, a notebook, a new, brand new, fresh notebook in non-erasable ink. All right, it gets worse. They had to do it perfectly. I gave them many weeks to accomplish this. Now, by perfectly, here's what I had them do in imitation of what the scribes would do. When they came to the end of every line, and then to the end of every page, and then to the end of every chapter, they had to go back and recount every letter and punctuation mark and make sure it lined up to the exact number in the Bible to ensure that they hadn't made a mistake that possibly they missed just by omission or commission. And if at any point they made a mistake, an extra hump on an M, an extra cross on a T, two letters are touching, a squiggly mark randomly somewhere. If there was any mistake at all, at the point that they found the mistake, at that moment, they had to take the paper, rip it up, crumple it, and throw it on the floor. I didn't even make them use garbage cans. My floor was just snow white with paper. First three days, the janitor just wanted to kill me. What are you trying to do? We, can't, we don't have dumpsters big enough for this stuff. What I was trying to do was get the kids to see. That's what scribes would do. If they found any mistake in a manuscript, they would literally destroy the manuscript and bury it and start over. They didn't want anyone to find something that might mislead them as to what God's word really was. So these scribes were important and valuable people. But here's what happened. As happens to many of us, their heads got big. The Israelites went into exile and they came back from Babylon and the people, the, the population was desperate to have their books of history and law and the word of God be accurate and be preserved and they started looking more and more to the scribes and before you know it, by the time the first century A.D. Runs, rolls around, you have this religious group of people who feel really highly about themselves because everyone looks up to them and they become religious without God really. And the words of the scribes and their traditions became as important or more important than the word of God. Dangerous territory. And so hence we have Jesus in the New Testament chastising them often and saying it's not about your religiosity and your goodness and what you think you can do and who you think you are. It's about me. 
And we hear that even the general public in Mark chapter 1 verse 22 says they were amazed at Jesus' teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as the scribes. The scribes were just like resounding gongs. They were just religious stuff coming out of their mouth. Jesus was teaching truth and grace and love. And so Jesus comes and he says, this group of people, these scribes, okay, these people who are full of themselves, who think that by their good works, by what they do, by how they serve, by how they're held up, by their church attendance, by the offering that they give, by the fact that they serve in their church, they think that they are so great. And Jesus said, how is it that this group of people goes about saying that the Christ is the son of David? It's a very odd question for Jesus to ask because he is the son of David. Okay, are you with me? Is anybody following me? I had some people walk out of the first service, oh, I loved your message, I love your message, and somebody comes along and says, you're crazy. <laughs> I said, oh, thanks. Do you mean that in a good way? Oh, yeah, I love it. You're crazy. I just love it. Okay, so anyway, so are you with me? Isn't that an odd question? Why would he say, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Because he is the son of David. What are you trying to say, Jesus? I love him. He's so logical. He's so smart. Okay? Here's what happens. Jesus is the son of David. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, comma, the son of David. Psalm 132, verse 11, a thousand years before Jesus ever came to the earth, a prophecy about his coming. The Lord has sworn to David a truth from which he will not turn back. Of the fruit of your body, David, I will set upon your throne. Jesus is going to be from the physical line of David. He's going to be from the kingly line. That's truth. So why is Jesus all messed up about it? Why is he upset that that's what they're proclaiming? You know why? A half-truth, in my estimation, is more damnable than what we deem an outright lie. I would rather you walk up to me and say, Jesus Christ is just a fairy tale, than walk up to me and say, Jesus Christ, by lineage is the king of the Jews, but he's not the son of God. The scribes went about comfortable to say, he is from the kingly line of David. Our Messiah is going to come and rule and reign and make this earthly life better for us upstanding religious church-attending people. And Jesus wanted them to know, you are lost and undone, and pitiful, and helpless, and stuck in your sin, and completely in need of God to save you. I am the son of David, but I am also the son of God. Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, but declared the Son of God with power according to the resurrection from the dead. Amen? And it is, it is a shame today. The people that we have going to churches on Sundays or meeting in small groups 
People who feel comfortable in and of themselves and think somehow that by attending church or going to youth group or being good or being a certain type of citizen or earning enough respect will somehow make you okay. You need God. There is no amount of church attendance and religiosity and service and kindness that can make you right with God. You need God to reach down and to save you. That's what Jesus wanted to say. Not because he hated the scribes, but because he loved them. And I'm not standing up here with my face turning red, spit coming out of my mouth. Yes, I almost hit Justin with a little bit of spit there. Okay, I'm not doing that because I don't like you, because I do love you. Because you need to know we need God. We don't need to try to be better. We need God to crash into our lives and to save us. Amen? Listen, Christianity is the only religion. Yeah, it was good to sit back a little bit, you know. Okay, Christianity is the only religion, and I hate to call it a religion, but for, for this illustration I will. We are the only religion in the world that teaches that God is completely holy and that we are completely sinful and that God... Our deity came down, scientifically speaking, into this space-time continuum, crashed into our world, put on human flesh, and took our place for our sinfulness. We are the only religion that teaches that. It is as if, if you will, God is infinitely holy. He is perfect. He is unreachable by us. Thank God he is that way. Because I don't need just another good person. I don't need a really great prophet. I need God. So God is infinitely holy, and he's standing atop of an infinitely high building. Just picture that. And what people do and what all other religions teach is, okay, I want to try to get to him. I need peace in my heart. I need forgiveness. I need hope for when I die. I need something. So I've got to get to that infinitely high God standing on that infinitely high building. How am I going to do it? And all other religions and people say, okay, I'm going to take an infinitely tall ladder and lean it up against the building and start to climb. Sounds like a plan. When do you ever get done climbing an infinite number of steps? Yeah, go ahead and climb. Go to church. Read your Bible. Be a good person. Do your daily devotions. Give in the offering. Feel good about yourself. Climb, 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 climb. Keep climbing, climbing, climbing. I'm going to get to them. What happens? Can never get there that way. You know what Christianity is in Shelley Prindle's crazy world? Here's what happens. God is at the top of that infinitely high building. He's standing there and he nudges Jesus. Jesus is God. His arm is how long? infinitely long. Isaiah says, your arm is not too short to save. And God nudges Jesus and says, look at her down there. She's helpless. She can't get to me. And Jesus reaches down with an infinitely long arm and scoops me up and brings me to God. Amen? Had nothing to do with Shelley Prindle had everything to do with Jesus. I need him to be God, not just a, a, a physical king 
I need God to save me. When I was younger, I loved tropical fish. I still do. But I loved them when I was young. And my parents, for one of my birthdays, got me a tropical fish tank full of swordtails. Now, the cool thing about swordtails is they bear their young live, which is really neat. You know, all of a sudden, mom's having the babies and these little things are swimming out. It's really cool. The gross part is that mom and dad also eat their babies. So, you know, mom gets pregnant and has the babies. Oh, there's a good meal for us. And they go swimming after them when they eat them. Very troubling to me. Now, my mom is a clean freak. And I knew that she was never going to help me to rescue these babies if one of them was pregnant. So what was I going to do if this occurred during the school year? So every day when I thought one of the swordtails was pregnant, I would run off the school bus. Curly-headed Shelly, run into the house off the school bus, and I'm like going insane. Have they had their babies yet? Because I have to save them. And I'd run into the house to make sure, because you'd have to pull them off to the side in their own separate net before mom and dad chomped them up, okay? I would go into the house, and if she had had babies, here was what I did not do. I did not cup my hands around my mouth and scream at the top of my lungs outside of the fish tank, Babies, run for your lives! Mommy's coming to eat ya! Because fish can't hear. I also did not take fluorescent poster board and make a big marker, a big uh, poster with permanent marker, and shove it up against the glass that said, "Little babies, swim behind the castle. Daddy's coming and he's hungry." Because fish can't read. The only hope my baby fish had of being saved was for me to roll up my sleeve, put my hand and arm in the algae-ridden, slimy, fish excrement-filled, old food flakes floating around water, okay? I had to dip my hand down into that water and by my own hand pull those babies with that little net over to safety. We are a mess. God knows the water is slimy. He came down and crashed into our world. He said, I'm not afraid of the algae and the slime and your mess. Don't walk out and say, Shelly's teaching heresy. I'm going to say something that's going to shake some of you up. We are not saved by doing anything that can save us by ourselves. We are also not saved by adhering to a certain belief system. We're not. I'm not saved by a set of beliefs. Okay, line up all my beliefs, all my doctrine. Okay, if I believe this, that's what saves me. I am saved by the God-man. He reached down and picked me up. I'm saved by my relationship with Jesus Christ. 
He needs to crash into our world. There should not be a person in this room who thinks that your life is too dirty and too slimy, too algae-ridden, too far gone, that you cannot do something to get to God. You don't do anything to get to God. He comes to you. Jesus said, how is it that these scribes are going about and damning people by trying to present me as only someone that you can, that can make your life better as you come to him and live this nice life that you live? I am the Son of God. And to answer the question, to answer the question that he himself asks, here's what Jesus does, and I love this. He refers back to the Old Testament. To answer his question, he goes and quotes from Psalm 110, verse 1. He says, you scribes want to claim that I am only the son of David. Well, I'm going to go back and show you what David himself wrote about me. Because they were the ones who transcribed the Bible. Shouldn't they know what it says? But how many of us read the Bible and only read the parts or think about the parts or live by the parts that we want? So Jesus goes back and says, David himself said in the Holy Spirit, now let's just stop there. Jesus Christ in the first century A.D. is now affirming that the Old Testament is the word of God. Amen? Because he said, David himself said in the Holy Spirit. You can trust that every word from Genesis to Revelation is inspired by our God and can change your life. Amen? Every word of God. Not just John 3.16. The whole thing. Jesus says back a thousand years ago, here's what David said in the Holy Spirit. He's affirming that God was with David when David wrote the Psalms. He is affirming the essence of Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This word is alive. You don't open up the Bible and assume you're reading a textbook or act like it's just a history book. When we read the Bible, it is alive. The Holy Spirit is here in this room with us. And as I am reading and quoting to you these scriptures, that word is living. It's going straight into your heart and it's doing something. What you allow it to do makes all the difference by your acceptance or rejecting of it. But Jesus himself affirms this is God's word. When David wrote those, it was the Holy Spirit with him. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture ever came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is not fairy tale. This is not what we would make up if we were going to make up a religion. You know what I'm saying? It's just too wild to be something a person would make up. It didn't have its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is important for our young people to understand. If you've never had a course in how the Bible came to us, you need to know this. This is not what people made up. God carried them along. When Moses and David and Peter and John wrote the scriptures, yes, they used their own personalities. They used their own experiences. Okay? 
But that word carried along by the Holy Spirit, that Greek root is the same thing as when the wind blows into the sail of a sailboat so as to steer it in a certain direction. So yes, I read the personality of Peter and and Moses when I read their words, and I hear of their experiences. They were in the boat, free to move about the boat and use their own personalities as they wrote, but that ship was only going one direction, the direction the Holy Spirit blew the boat. Amen? This is God's word, so rich and so awesome. And Jesus goes back and says, okay, scribes, by the way, let me remind you of something. You're dealing in the living word of God. And here's what David himself said. This is what David said. Now, I'm going to be David up here, okay? I'm David. I know I don't look like a shepherd boy turned king. I look like a crazy woman, apparently. But this is me. I'm David, okay? Now, this is your left, but it's my right. Right, Marty? So left, okay? This is your right. So I'm going to do the opposite for the sake of your reference point. So here's your left. Here's your right. This is what David was saying. He's standing in the middle and he's saying this. He's saying, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, the Father, the Lord, the God, the Father said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. So David is saying, the Lord, Jehovah, God the Father, said to my Lord, Jesus the Son, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. So Jesus goes on to say, David himself called him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? In other words, David was affirming, the Father said to my Lord the Son, David was saying, I know that he's coming from my lineage. I know he belongs to my heritage. I know he's coming from me according to the flesh. But what did David call him? What did he call Jesus? My what? My Lord. He is both coming from my flesh and my Savior. Lord means master. It means king. So Jesus was saying, scribes, don't you get it? Even David himself was saying that Jesus is the king. He is God. David knew he was God. We look back to the cross of Calvary. Those Old Testament believers looked forward to the cross. I do a whole sermon. I have this wonderful sermon about Noah when he got off the ark and how Noah was only saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And David, think of little David, shepherd boy gets so bent out of shape because somebody is knocking and making fun of his God. Remember? And he stood on one mount of the Valley of Elah, and there was the Philistine, uh, uh, the giant Goliath, standing on the other side. And David was so upset that God was being defamed. He said, I'll go to battle with that nine-foot-tall giant wearing 150 pounds of armor. Gosh, the point on his spear, the Bible says, was 15 pounds alone. And David went to him with a slingshot. And when he went, he said, I don't need weapons. I don't need all this fancy armor. Here's what he said. You check it out. He said, I'm not coming to you with a spear and with a sword and with a shield. He said, I am coming to you, buddy, in the name of the Lord of hosts. And the word for hosts there means the armies of heaven. 
David said, I'm coming to you by the armies of heaven. And I want everybody to know that is how we fight this war. You don't need the stuff that the world has. You need the Lord of hosts on your side. Now, why do I say that? Because if you flip to the book of Revelation and you read about the armies of heaven coming for that one final battle when we are there and all the hosts of the army of heaven are there, you find out real quick who leads the hosts of heaven. What is his name? Jesus who will be on that white horse with the flaming sword coming out of his mouth. David believed in Jesus. He said, I'm coming to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, which is led by Jesus Christ himself. And not only so, but David, who was a Christian, who was a man after God's own heart, who served him for many years, it blows my mind that Jesus was willing to call himself the son of David. You remember what David did after he was a Christian? Giving into his own sinful passion, he committed adultery with Bathsheba, and in a futile attempt to cover up his sin, had her husband murdered. You want to talk about grace? You think you're too far gone for God to save you? (laughs) Jesus said, I am the son of David. I'm not ashamed to be called his son. Listen, David committed adultery and murder. And after he had done so, He pours out his heart in Psalm chapter 51. And you'll see a David that believes in Jesus. Here's what he said. In the famously quoted verse, verse 10, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. You say, how can that happen, Shelley? Whether I'm saved or I'm unsaved, I've done some things that you wouldn't believe. I've been some places you wouldn't imagine. How in the world could I now be renewed in my spirit? Well, you need to move forward to Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17. You think, you think David didn't believe in Jesus? Listen to what he said in Psalm 51:16. Now, David lives and knew about the tabernacle and the temple and the animal sacrifices, did he not? And here is what he said when he went to God after his horrible sin, I'm sure at the complete end of himself, wondering what could ever become of his life now. Here's what he said to God. He said, God, you do not delight in sacrifice. Otherwise, I would give it. Okay, so here's David. He has committed adultery and murder as a Christian. And he comes back to God and says, there is not a sacrifice I could make. There is not a thing I could do. I couldn't serve in the church enough. I couldn't give enough money. I couldn't beat myself. I couldn't starve myself. There is not a sacrifice that I could make that would please you right now, God. Then he says in verse 17, the sacrifices of God are broken spirit, 
a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. So it is as if David was sitting there saying, now I've done it, and I have no hope. There is nothing I can do to make you love me, God. But this one thing. And it's essentially he falls down on his knees and says, I am broken. I am completely a mess. And when I finally admit that, God, that is the most beautiful thing in the world to you. And when I do, you reach your infinitely long arm down into my world and pick me up and dust me off and make me new. Amen? The enemy would love some people in this sanctuary this morning to believe in a Jesus who's only the son of David, in a Jesus who's only a great prophet who wants you to be better, to make your life better. You know who Jesus is? He's God. And it doesn't matter what you've done and where you've been. It doesn't matter how long you've been there. The sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite spirit. And God will always accept them. Hallelujah. Then David goes on to say about Jesus that one day all of the enemies of Jesus will be put beneath his feet. David is affirming in 1000 B.C. the same thing that Jesus confirms in the first century A.D., the same thing that Paul affirms just a few short years after Jesus ascends back to heaven. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 24. Listen to what he says. You talk about the unity of the Bible. (laughs) King David writing in 1000 B.C. is writing the same stuff that Paul's writing. In the 50s, and here's what he said, 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 24. And then the end shall come. When Jesus hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Listen, he must reign until he's taken down every enemy. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. And so when he has done this, the Son himself, will be made subject to God the Father so that God may be all in all. Little sidetrack, little bunny trail on that. If your kids ever ask you, what's going to happen to the universe? What's the end of the world? All this stuff. Tell them, There's one giant cosmic plan for the universe, and you find it in 1 Corinthians 15, 28. One day, God 
will be all in all. And if that's true, if I believe that this is the word of God and I believe that's where this whole cosmos is headed, then how am I living my life today? If you believe this is the truth and God's in control and this whole thing is headed to a place where he is all in all, where his righteousness reigns, where he puts down every bit of selfishness and greed and self-exaltation and he is everything, if you believe that's true, why would you live your life opposite that today? Why would you oppose the cosmic plan of God? Did you ever think about that? When I walk through the hallway of this church, the smile on my face better reflect the fact that God is all in all. Amen? When I go to work and I sit with my coworkers, the conversation that I have and my demeanor, my passion, my level of obvious love for God better reflect the fact that I believe God is going to be all in all. When I live my life, and for me it's with uh, some heartaches and and this disease that I carry around physically speaking, I I can't let it take the best of me by God's grace. I live under whatever circumstances God allows me to live under, under believing and lining myself up with the cosmic plan. God is all in all. Amen? David said, there's a day coming when every enemy of Christ will be put beneath his feet. Now, for those of you who like pictures and illustrations, there is one thing about Halloween that Shelley Prindle likes, and one thing only. <laughs> Love these things, okay? The first year that these, like, three-foot-tall plastic witches came out, and people were, like, slamming them up against their houses... You know, but when they first came out, it was like you saw them against all these telephone poles. You ever see one of these? You know, it looks like she's been flying on her broom, and then she hits a telephone pole, and now she's going to slide down. When I first saw these things, I was like, this is so cool. Because my mind just works in strange and mysterious ways, you know what I'm saying? But I saw this, and I was like, this is awesome. I looked at the first one of those I ever saw, and my jaw dropped open. Because I wasn't thinking of a wooden telephone pole. I thought immediately of a wooden cross, the cross of Calvary. And I thought that is a beautiful illustration of a truth that every person in this room better grapple with right now. You will either run to the cross of Jesus Christ and embrace it with every fiber of your being. Or you will someday run into the exact same cross and be destroyed by it. Those are the only two options. Jesus said, if anyone would truly come after me, he must deny himself every single day that he lives, and take up his cross and follow me. You will either run to the cross of Calvary and embrace it and say, Jesus, I can't believe that you saved me. I can't believe you crashed into this world for me and saved me from who I am. 
And I love you so much. I recognize that as being so real. And if you really do get saved, the only thing that you could possibly do is embrace that cross and say, I am living for Jesus the rest of my life. And I promise you one thing. If you don't, you'll meet up with the cross again. You will, sm- you will fly smack into that thing and fall and be destroyed by the very cross that you rejected. Because every enemy of God's will be destroyed beneath the feet of Jesus. Amen? It's a freeing thought to know that the demonic powers that have chased us around, that are the demons who are even now, there is a, do, you, do you all understand there's a spiritual batting, battle going on at all moments, at all times? You would not believe the spiritual battle I go through while I'm preparing a message and getting ready to preach it. So all the demons that are listening to me right now, you're going down, baby. <laughs> Every power of hell that's ever tried to mess with you, pull you from Jesus, lie to you and tell you there's no hope, say God can't help you. Every demon in hell, every power against him is going down. But I want to end with this one thought, though. Paul, in the book of Philippians, gives a description of human enemies of the cross of Christ. He says in Philippians, beginning... Chapter 3, beginning at verse 18, he says, As I have said to you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live, many human beings live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Let me tell you, that's a category you don't want to fall into. Because remember the witch? Okay. Okay. He says, But many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. And he goes on to describe them in four ways. Here's what he says. Their destiny is destruction. The witch. He says, their God is their stomach. Now, what that means is, how many of you know that no matter how much you pig out and gorge when you eat, it's only a number of hours later, maybe four to eight hours later, and what happens? You're hungry again. You ever ever eaten yourself to a point where you're like, if I ever see food again... I will never touch another piece of pie again, okay? Eight hours later, where's that pie? Yeah, okay, because our stomachs have very short memories. And here's why, here's why God says that their God is their stomach. In other words, there are people who live for what fills their appetite. They want status. They want power. They want money. They want to be selfish. They want sexual sin. They want lust. They want... So they live for stuff that they, they want, that they think can satisfy them. And what happens? They get it. Sin is pleasurable for a season, and what happens? They're empty again. Okay? Their God is their stomach. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. How sad. That we as human beings sometimes live, and the very thing we glory in, God looks down and says, that is pitiful. That is shameful. There are people, even Christians, who, you know, materialists. I'm going to live for money and stuff. That's what I want to live for. Look at me. I have all this stuff. I have all this wealth. I have all this power. I have all this 
status. I've moved up in the world and God's looking down. And the very thing we are glorying in, he's looking down and saying, that is shameful. But that is what would be your God. People who live for sexual escapades or uh, selfishness, greed, people who live to mess around and hurt other people, you put it in, but there are people we glory in the very thing that God's looking down and saying, that is so shameful. So there's four descriptions, and the first three are their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame, and guess what number four is? An enemy of the cross of Jesus Christ is described very simply this way. You ready for it? Their mind is on earthly things. Yeah. There's no such thing as a Christian that isn't on fire for Jesus Christ. Listen, you're either embracing the cross or you're playing religious games. Okay? Their mind is on earthly things. Let me ask you a question. Last time you were at Starbucks or Panera Bread with family or a group of friends, what the conversation rotate around? Was it all about the latest episode of Dancing with the Stars or your latest shopping excursion and you know, all this stuff? Where was God in that? Because if I believe that this whole thing is headed his direction, and if he's really saved me, and if this word is really alive, and if all this that I've just said this morning is true, then when I go to Starbucks, I want to talk about it, baby. Right? Like the cell phone, like the screen on your cell phone goes to a certain picture when you're not using it, the default setting. What does your mind and your heart go back to most of the time? Do you crave to talk and think and live and focus your life on Jesus? Or is your mind on earthly, meaningless things? Right? If I were to ask your spouse or your best friend or your children or your co-workers, who does he love the most? What would they say? A person? A thing? A career? Or no doubt about it. John is passionately in love with Jesus Christ. Or is your mind on earthly things? Are you more likely to be seen with your iPod, your laptop, your cell phone, or your Bible? Is our mind on earthly things? Can you name three people who look up to you spiritually? Not three people that you look up to. Can you name a measly three people who look up to you to get closer to God? Or is our mind on earthly, meaningless, temporary things? Simplify your life so that Jesus is everything. Because an enemy of the cross of Christ is someone whose mind is on earthly things. And your destiny is destruction. Bow your heads with me.